Hey friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a friend to join me and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Hey friends, happy to the second week of June. It's a good day at the happy hour. We have a great show today. My kids are at Pine Cove, which we love Pine Cove. Today's show is the second in our encounter series. Last week, Joanne Doyle was on the show. We started out with her. And today is Tessa Afshar. Tessa is an author and has an amazing story of how Jesus came to find her. I don't want to give the details away because you're going to want to hear this whole thing. She was born in the Middle East. She became a Christian when she lived in the States. I'll let her tell you all about it. Friends, I want to say this every week on the Encounter Series is if you're listening and you don't own a Bible, we would love to get you a Bible. We have some here we would love to share with you. Just send us an email. Send it to jamie at jamieivy.com and we can get you a Bible. We want you to have a Bible if you need a Bible. We believe that God shows up uh, through his word. And so we would love to share that with you. Before we jump into hearing today's encounter story, I wanted to take a moment to share the story of another life changed through the gospel by the intentional generosity of a listener just like you. When Ricardo closes his eyes, he can hear all the sounds from his neighborhood. The old ladies chatting in front of their houses, the children running and playing in the streets, and the trending Brazilian songs in the season. These sounds are very familiar to the 11-year-old boy. The smell is also familiar. The community was born on the banks of a mangrove that often floods the community, especially in the rainy season. Everything is like always, but in the last months, Jose Ricardo has been adding an unfamiliar sound to his neighborhood, the music of a violin. Ricardo lives with his mother, stepfather, grandparents, and three siblings in the northeast of Brazil. His community is dominated by drug dealers and gangs. His family income comes from government support, recyclables, and from the chicken and pigs they raise in the backyard of their house. He is a hardworking boy, and for a long time, he thought working was better than studying. That was before he came to the Compassion Center at his local church. Today, he has been dedicating more time to living his childhood and dreaming bigger. At the center, he even learned the violin, which became his biggest passion. Against all the curse words that he used to hear about his future from his relatives, the violin is giving Ricardo a dream bigger than the poverty that surrounds him. Ricardo says, I have many dreams. I want to become a violinist, but also a cook. My grandmother, my favorite person in the world, taught me to cook, and I'd love to work with this skill one day. But the violin is my biggest passion. And one day, I hope I can give my family a beautiful house to live in. While Ricardo walks home in the same old streets after another day at the Compassion Center, he now sings the songs he's learning to play on the violin. The boy who believes that music can change the people and the world wishes that his community one day also can be changed as his life has been changed. I pray to God to save my community so that instead of terror, trash, and traffic, we will have love and peace people will change. Stop throwing garbage on the streets and love each other. Ricardo's life has been changed through compassion, just like so many hundreds of thousands of other kids have been changed by compassion. Compassion International is working to release children from poverty in Jesus's name through its one-on-one child sponsorship. My family has been a part of Compassion for over 15 years, and we currently sponsor numerous children around the world. When you sponsor a child through Compassion, your $43 a month is going to provide food, clean water, education, medical and dental checkups, and above all else, the ability to learn about Jesus and flourish through the local church. 
In fact, it's one of my favorite parts about Compassion is that you won't see any foreigners running these programs. Everything runs through the local church. And you know what else is great? Your Compassion sponsorship doesn't just provide for the needs of that one child, but Compassion cares for the whole family and their community. There are more than 100,000 children who are needing to be sponsored. I want to say this. I'm very proud of you guys that are listeners of the Happy Hour because together we have partnered with Compassion over the last couple of years and we have sponsored more than 500 children. More than 500 children. Pat yourself on the back if you're one of them. I want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you, thank you, thank you. And friends, we want to continue to partner with Compassion and we hope to add to this number all throughout our Summer Encounter series with the goal of 200 new child sponsorships. Would you think about partnering with Compassion this summer? To partner with Compassion and bringing hope to a child today, we've made it super easy. Simply text IV Media to 83393. That's IV Media, I V E Y Media to 83393. Or go to compassion.com IV Media. The link, of course, is always in the show notes for you to find it. That's compassion.com IV Media. Together, you and I can partner with the global church to give transformational hope to the families around the world. All right, you guys, here is my conversation with Tessa Afshar. Tessa, welcome to the happy hour. It's so fun to be with you, Jamie. I'm so excited to have you, and especially because you are our second guest of the summer for our encounter series, where we really just want to share people's stories of having an encounter with Jesus. And Tessa, what I've seen after doing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of interviews over the years, and then specifically interviews about people's story, is that God is just the God who is unique and He works in our lives in ways that are just so special for us as individuals. And so I'm really looking forward to hearing your story. Before we get to your story, tell everybody what you do now. Like, tell what you do, what you do in life, all those things. I am a very blessed wife, and I'm a full-time writer. I write historical fiction set in the time of the Bible, and I also do a little bit of nonfiction. I'm so, oh, you have a book coming out this year, don't you? Yep, I have another book coming out in the fall. So um, it's just really one of those dreams that came to pass for me, because as you can tell, as I'm speaking, like English is not my first language. I have a funny accent. So to be able to be a writer full time, I speak sometimes as well, that the Lord restored that to me, even though this is not the language of my birth. It's really miraculous. It is miraculous. And I was looking at your books a couple days ago online, and I realized these are the kind of books that my mom loves. And so I'm going to have to send her some of your books. So I was like, oh, this is so exciting. So I can't wait to read your books as well. Well, I would like to go back in time if you could take us to Tessa growing up as a child. What did that look like and pre-knowing Jesus, all the things, but tell us a little bit about your childhood. So I was born in the Middle East. I'm not going to mention the country just for security reasons, but just I'll give you a hint. I was born in the land of Cyrus and Esther and Nehemiah. Uh, My parents were nominal Muslims. So in case you're wondering what is a nominal Muslim, it's actually not that different from a nominal Christian. So my parents believed in God, but they didn't practice the tenets of Islam. My mother didn't wear hijab. They didn't pray five times a day. They didn't fast during Ramadan, those kinds of things. And um, what I recall is that they really didn't believe in any kind of religion at all. They Mm. sort of felt like all religions were exactly the same. They are made by human um, 
minds and it's like if you need it if you need that crutch that's fine for you but we are kind of above that uh we are moral enough thank you very much sort of that's where that's where we landed in terms of our faith and so i have a yeah. question about that with the nominal muslim um again not knowing and it's not important what exact country but in the middle east is it okay to be a nominal Muslim or is there a is there a push for people to be like all bought in to to the religion? Like did your parents have any pushback for for that? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, this was during the time of the uh the Shah and so no, it was very normal for um, mm. people who were kind of educated and um you know, had white collar jobs, let's put it that way. Many of them were mm -hmm. nominal Muslims. There was no pushback. It was just the way you lived. Uh, life has changed yeah, yeah. a lot, not in the sense that people are nominal Muslims. There's still a lot of people who are nominal Muslims. It's just that they have to keep it down low. They have to, they can't announce it. Uh, women try, for mm -hmm. example, to go out now without hijab and they are punished for it horribly. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you grew up in a nominal Muslim family. Your parents were just like, there is a God and everyone can have their own thing. And everything was good until what? Then when I was 13, my parents were divorced and my mom and my sister and I ended up moving to England where I started attending um, boarding school for girls. Now, I said that in a really fast sentence, but it entailed a lot of loss for me because it meant mm -hmm. I pretty much left behind the life I, I knew. I lost my home. I lost my friends. I lost my extended family, which in the Middle East is a big part of life. Mm -hmm. I lost my food. I lost my language. I, um, but probably I think the biggest loss in all of that was my father because my father was a physician and he decided to remain behind so that he could practice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my dad was the parent that I connected with emotionally. I always mm -hmm. knew my parents loved me. Like this was something that was um, very overt in our family. It was expressed verbally. My mom was a big hugger. But, you know, you can really love your kids but not get them. And I think my mm -hmm. mom didn't know quite what to do with me. I was very kind of a sensitive child. I wrote poetry. I cried at the drop of a hat. And I was really strong-willed. So she, she was the parent who had charge of us uh, on a daily basis because my dad was always working. But my mm -hmm. dad was the one that I felt emotionally understood me and connected mm. with me. So leaving him behind, that was a huge wound. That was a huge yeah. loss. Oh, I can imagine at 14, like not only having to leave everything about basically your identity. I mean, your whole identity, you 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 left it in your home country and ended up in England, which is can be quite different from your home country in a lot of ways. Um, and leaving your dad, talk about that transition a little bit as a teenager. I mean, I have a 15-year-old daughter and like even just sometimes having to do her chores is like an identity struggle for her. <laughs> like but you're, you're you're picking up and leaving. What did that do for you as a teenager? I mean, in, in some ways, it was good for me because I'd been very cosseted and to be now mm -hmm. in this very highly disciplined uh, place, while it kind of ripped a, a layer of skin off me, was probably um, in the long run something that I needed. But I think the most damaging part was this uh, separation from my dad 
because, uh, you know, this is back when the only way we could, there's no FaceTime, there's no right. texting. The only way we could communicate was like longhand letters with mm. stamps that you had to lick in order to. Uh-huh. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. And, and then phone calls, which were so expensive that we couldn't you'd do it really once a month or a couple of times a month. And so that separation, I had to make sense of that somehow. And I knew at 14, because in 14, life is very black and white. You Mm -hmm. kind of understand life in a very uh, right or wrong way. And I knew in my heart of hearts that the father that I adored had made the decision to part himself from me. Uh, Yeah, he had like um, some common sense reason for doing it but I also was aware that if he had wanted to give everything up Mm. if he had wanted to make life smaller and simpler he could have been with me and he chose not to be and I Mm. couldn't I couldn't internalize that because I would have given up anything to be with him later on you know that's exactly what Jesus did for us Jesus Mm -hmm. gave up the glory. Jesus gave up home. Jesus gave up his father. Jesus gave up the perfection and emptied himself into the womb of Mary in order to Mm -hmm. be with us, in order to make it possible for us to always be with him. That's exactly like the wound that had been carved into my heart. Mm -hmm. I knew that's how fathers love. But my Mm -hmm. father made a decision that sort of brought a wound of forsakenness into my heart. Mm. So I, had I have the a feeling with- later in your story, Tess, I have a feeling that this is going to come back to play a little bit with that wound. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, but at the time, th- this was like, I, I, you know, the problem was one, my parents had loved me, but love did not, I, I learned that love didn't mean that you couldn't get abandoned. Mm. Love wasn't strong enough. And the second thing I learned, which was the way I internalized, it wasn't true, but that's how my heart understood it. Because I couldn't believe that my father, whom I adored, could possibly have done anything wrong. So something must have been wrong with me. And so I came to the conclusion that if you really got to know me, then you would realize I was abandonable at my very core. Mm. So here I enter into a foreign place, different language. You know, I'm trying to take notes in class and I don't even know what the heck they're talking about. And and I'm trying to navigate this new world with this gouging wound mm. in my heart. Mm. Well, in boarding school, we uh, it wasn't a Christian boarding school, but we were told that we had to go to church on Sundays because Christian, uh, I mean, English boarding schools are very traditional. So that's what you do on Sundays. But they told those of us from who were from a different background, you can sit upstairs in your balcony and read your own books of faith, which of course for us would have been the Quran. But what they didn't mm-hmm. understand is that the Quran is really different from the way the Bible operates. First of all, it's not one of the tenets of faith. It's For us uh, Christians reading the Bible, it's a really key way of connecting with God, of deepening our faith. But the Quran doesn't have that function. Uh, mm. And then for us, it's so important that people read it in their heart language. Like people give up their lives to go live in a different country, learn that language and translate the the, the Bible into their heart language. But in mm-hmm. the Quran, you only can read in the original Arabic in order for it to be efficacious from a faith perspective. Mm-hmm. So I didn't speak Arabic. I spoke Persian. <laughs> but I was too shy to explain to my teachers, hey, like this uh-huh. doesn't make any sense. So I, I didn't want to be disobedient. So I said, well, I'll read romance novels. 
<laughs> You're like, I'm going to make use of my time up here. And I may not be able to read this, but I can read romance novels. I love it. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I learned about love, but I'm not sure that's what Jesus had in mind. But so, uh-huh. all that to say, I did not become a Christian while I was going to school and in fact, never heard the gospel, never heard the gospel. And even until I graduated, I came to the U.S. to go to college. This has been my home ever since. I'm an American citizen. And I I just, as an aside, I love this country. I'm so (laughs) blessed to live here. I'm so blessed to live here. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes, you know, we forget that. Yeah. But there's just, I'm not saying we're perfect, but I'm Mm -hmm. saying in the midst of our imperfection, in the midst of all the things that are broken, there's so much favor from the Lord that still rests mm. on this country. Mm. So, um, but even in all of those years that I was going to college and all that, nobody shared the gospel. So I'm definitely not a Christian at this point. <laughs> okay. So you move over and go to college. Can you say where you went to college? I went to college upstate New York, a women's college at the time was okay. called the Sage College. Okay. Yeah. So you come to co- you come to university over here, you leave your mother behind and your sister behind, and your dad is still in the Middle East. And at this point, I would say that you are um, you you learn English at your boarding school, I would assume. Yes. And then you come to university and but no one ever introduced you to Jesus. And so let's talk about how that journey started from you from coming to the US and then having an encounter with the Lord. Well, it came through it came through a heartbreak, really. Um, I I fell in love when I was in college and I married a young man. And, you know, all those losses that I'd had as a teenager, I sort of sank into this man. So he became my home. He became my Mm. family. Um, He became my stability. And no one can carry that weight. And he certainly couldn't. And after a few years, he wanted a divorce. He sort of uh, felt like he wanted to be with other people. And so Mm. here's where the Muslim... Uh, worldview came into work for me because in Islam, even though we weren't practicing Islam, we lived in that worldview. And in Islam, everything is very achievement oriented. Even like your eternal destiny has Mm -hmm. to do with you. So uh, by the end of your life, literally there's a scale, your good works go on one side, your bad works go on the other, whichever is heavier, that's the direction you're headed in. Yeah. (laughs) So I kind of grew up with this notion that it's up to me. Life is up to Mm. me. Happiness is up to me. Contentment is something I carve out. And I was under the impression that if I worked hard enough, if I was pretty enough, if I was smart enough, if I was enough in some way, that that would mean that I would be, um, that that I could achieve success and success meaning like happiness and contentment. Mm -hmm. And here I came across this situation where there was nothing I could do to change my husband's mind. He Mm. was done. And so, um, and all of a sudden, all of these lies I had believed about life came, fell apart. And Mm. that place of security that I had also rested myself on fell apart. Mm. And worse than that, when my parents had gotten divorced, it had been so painful to me, Jamie, that I had made a vow that even if I married the devil himself, I would Mm. never get divorced. Mm -hmm. You've got to watch these vows because they have such power, whether they are intentional or subconscious or whatever, they have such power over you. Mm. And for me, that vow meant essentially that divorce was the greatest failure. Mm. So now, not only could I not change anything, not only had I lost whatever foundation of security and happiness I had, Mm. but I was also this great failure. Mm. And you, I had failed at life. 
you probably were feeling all the feelings of that abandonment at 14 again. Like you couldn't make your dad stay and choose you. You couldn't make him love you. And now you're in a situation where you can't make your husband stay and you can't make him love you. And so, you know, I find it interesting, Tessa, and we see this in in Western cultures where with Christianity is that this nominal faith that you had, it still was so foundational for you. I mean, like you weren't bought in, you weren't a practicing Muslim, but it was like, it was dictating everything about your life, which I think is interesting so much. Were you aware of that in that moment of like, or was it just, this is our culture. It was more culture, I bet. Yeah, I think I think I didn't even understand that it was culture. I just felt like this is the truth. I didn't understand mm, okay. how much of this was weighed in by these external forces. And so this rejection, this wound of rejection, you know, I had, I'd been abandoned, now I was rejected. It just went mm. to the core of me. Mm-hmm. And so mm. again, I had never heard the gospel, so I didn't have a place to go to with this. And mm. in it, again, in Islam, Everything is because everything's up to you. The notion of God, God is called kind and merciful, but there is no really sign of that mercy. You don't see it at work, you don't see it um, on the cross. Where for Mm. us Christians, everything comes down to grace. It's Mm -hmm. not up to you. In fact, Mm -hmm. what you learn, the first thing you learn about yourself in Christianity is you will fail, you have failed. And Mm -hmm. there is no way that you can escape that failure. But God himself has made a way. Mm -hmm. That's the grace. And I had had no access to any of that at the time. So that was Mm -hmm. the time I I, I had gone back to England for a year just to be with my mom because I didn't know what to do with myself. And that's when I had a dream of Jesus. In that dream, I was by the Sea of Galilee and a man started walking toward me. And I knew in the dream that this man is Jesus. And I was very curious to see, well, what does he look like? And I'm embarrassed to say I'm probably one of the few people in the world who was so superficial in my uh, awake life. And I took that superficiality f- with me into my uh, into my dream world. I don't think you're alone in that, Tessa. So don't <laughs> put that on you. <laughs> so when I saw Jesus, my first impression was disappointment because the only way I'd seen Jesus was in a couple of movies when I was in England during Easter and Christmas. And in both movies, he'd been really like Hollywood good looking. (laughs) And the Jesus of my dream was not, he was like homely. And, Mm -hmm. And I was like, like, that's Jesus. You know, God couldn't do any better for his son. Mm -hmm. And then he walked close enough to me in the dream where I could see his eyes. And, you know, all of that superficiality left me. And Mm. I almost fell to my knees, Jamie, because in his eyes, I saw the kind of love I had always dreamed of. It was the love Mm. that would never fail, the love that would never break. It was the love that um, had come into this world pursuing me. Mm. And next to that love, I also saw a power, the likes of which I had never known. Later on, I would recognize this is the power that put the stars in their place, that named them, that holds the world in the palm of his hand. But of course, Mm. I didn't know any of that. I just knew I'd never seen anything like these two things, that Mm. whatever this man said would come to pass, that every promise Mm. he made, I could stand on. And the miraculous part of this dream was that I knew he was the son of God. Mm. 
mm-hmm. that I knew he was very God of very God. And when he said, follow me, I knew he wasn't just saying, walk with me down the, to the Sea of Galilee and get into my boat. Although we did that, he was saying, follow me for the rest of your life. You guys, in January of 2024, I made a commitment to myself. I wanted to get stronger, which meant I needed to get in the gym, which means I needed to move my body in different ways. You guys know I love to walk. Well, it's spring, and spring is the best time for us to start a new workout routine. It's our yearly collective warm-up, and Peloton is here for everyone's yearly warm-up. This is the best time to get into a good rhythm, to tap into your power, and build towards your summer you. I love my Peloton. It accommodates to my schedule with a variety of class links to choose from. I can choose a 30-minute class. I can choose a 45-minute class. If you only have five minutes, there's literally a class to get you moving your body in five minutes. Peloton has a range of class types fit for every goal and every mood. There are classes if you want to hear country music, if you want to hear uh, rock, if you want to go back to the 80s. If you can't run, take a walking class. Need some grounding? Try yoga. If you want to level up, go for their Pilates or HIIT workouts. Here's what I love is that you can move at your own pace. And that is what I'm learning that my body needs right now. It needs to move at its own pace. Peloton makes the process easier with personalized recommendations and guided programs that take all the guesswork out of working out. You guys, we think about so many things during the day. Let's take the guesswork out. Let's jump right in and let's keep our fitness journey fresh every single day. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. I personally love a good 45-minute hip-hop class. It gets me moving. It gets me excited. It's my favorite genre of music, just ask my kids. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. Okay, so I have read about these dreams and heard people talk about them, and I literally get chill bumps every time I hear because I, I, it's funny, Tessa. Last week we had Joanna on the show. I mean, Joanne on the show talking about women who risk in the book and her her work in the Middle East. And as I was reading the book, I was I keep telling everybody about this book. Like I'm talking about it to everybody I tell because everyone's got to read it. And um. And I told someone, and you have it, which is so funny because someone just told you to read it. <laughs> I love it. But as I was telling someone about it, Tessa, I told them, I said, it almost makes me cry because I said, I, I wish I could understand what that feels like, that dream. And I've been walking with Jesus for over two decades. I grew up in a Christian home. like I, I knew who Jesus was from the time I was a child. But there's something about that that is so intriguing and beautiful to me that I'm also, I'm jealous, not in a bad way, but in like, a like oh, I wish I could wake up from a dream knowing that, that you just saw Jesus. And so I'm so intrigued by it. And I want to ask you a question because you mentioned this. You said the miraculous thing is that you knew that it was Jesus, the Son of God. Like you knew that that's who it was. And so my two questions for you, and I don't even know if you have an answer to this. First is growing up in a, a nominal Muslim household going to church in England, coming to the U.S., what did you know about Jesus? That's my first question, because you said, like, I didn't really know, but what did you know? And then my second question is, like, 
and again, I don't know if you have an answer for this because you said it was miraculous that you knew it was Jesus. Like, how do you explain? How did you know it was Jesus? Like, and again, I feel like I'm asking like the dumbest question ever because you're like, I don't know. It was just in my dream. But my two questions, what did you know about Jesus? And when you woke up, how did you know that was Jesus that I just saw? Whatever I knew about Jesus was what I had seen in those two movies. So, you know, I knew he had gone to the cross. I knew that there was- So you had seen like an Easter movie and a Christmas movie. That's it. So you that's the sum total of my knowledge, not my belief, but what I had seen. Um, I did sort of, I I did know that Jesus could heal while he was on earth. That sort of a thing. Um, I will tell you, there's a verse in Philippians that says, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. That's how I felt when I met him in in the dream. Like mm. I, I literally felt like my knees are going to give way and my tongue is confessing he's the son of God. Like that's how it feels. Just to sort of put your mind at ease in terms of like, oh man, you had this experience and I didn't. I did wake up with three days of unshakable peace, which at that time was extraordinary because my life had shattered. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't become a Christian. Right. Like my conscious mind still had all of those objections that I had since my childhood. I still thought, you know, Jesus is a religion, you know, all of that. That's for like other people. I don't need this. Um, mm. I would like a list of do's and don'ts because my life is a mess. But like I, this whole thing is not for me. Mm. But I knew something I- important had happened in my life because of the peace I was experiencing. Mm-hmm. And I also feel like in the spiritual realm, something happened that broke through some stronghold in my soul that I didn't know existed. Because after that is when for the first time I was surrounded by Christians. I had neighbors who were Christians. I had um, a friend of mine, uh, when I came back to the US, I made a really good friend and her parents were all like totally into Jesus. And these people now started loving up on me like crazy. They would invite me to their home. They would cook for me. They uh, they acted like they really enjoyed my company. They must mm-hmm. have because it's 30 some odd years later, they still invite me <laughs> to their home. And so, you know, and, and I, I knew that there was something special about them. And I kept asking them, like, what is it about you? Like the parents of my friend had such a good marriage and they had no business having a good marriage because they were even more different than my parents had been different. Uh-huh. And I was like, why do you love each other? Like, it's clear you're happy. Where does this come from and they kept saying Jesus and I was like yeah okay but besides that you know can you tell me me for real yeah Yeah. like tell tell me tell me the list what's the list yeah and I know they said no it's just Jesus and so you know for a few months this went on and I I I, one day I remember thinking okay 99% I'm right because I'm usually right and they're wrong but 1% or 0.1% what if I'm wrong. What am I missing out mm. here? And I always say it like Jesus just needed my 0.1%. That's all he needed. Yeah. yeah. And that was the permission for him to come into my heart. And I fell in love with him. And really, that's what it is. It wasn't an intellectual, like the intellectual um, faith came afterwards. Mm-hmm. The initial faith was a falling in love with the person of Jesus. Again, mm. you know, going back to that moment of looking in his eyes, there is no love like that. Mm. I want to know after you started this journey of falling in love with Jesus, and and I, I and I really don't want people to miss how much of that was just people loving you like Jesus loves people, and like how much that goes in people's lives. And all of us that are listening, me, you, all of us, we had these opportunities all the time just to love people. 
And we never know if we're going to be the one person that's showing them like this love from G. And although we don't have perfect love, obviously we're sinners, but to show them that. But I want to go back to, you know, you started this whole conversation with your parents getting a divorce and really feeling as though your dad had a choice and he chose something other than his daughter. And um, now that you're falling in love with Jesus, what happens with your relationship with your father and what happens to these wounds that you've been carrying for 20 some odd years, maybe? What does that look like? Well, you know, one of the things that happened that was extraordinary for me was that Jesus himself fathered me. It's sort of like the woman mm. with the issue of blood right before her, this father comes and falls at Jesus' feet and says, come and heal my daughter. But she has to steal her healing because there's no father to fall at his feet for her. And so she's the only mm. woman, the only place where Jesus looks at her and calls her daughter. And I think he calls her daughter because he steps into that like He steps into that vacuum. Whatever the father wound is, he calls her daughter. And what he's saying is, mm. I'm your father. I will never abandon you. I will cherish mm. you. I'm proud mm. of you. I will protect you. I will provide for you. He calls mm. her daughter and he fulfills fatherhood. And Jesus did that for me little by little over the months and the years. He taught me what it was like to be father. When I say father today and I pray, Pray. To me, that's a miracle in my mouth. Mm, it's a miracle yeah. that the God of the universe, who's so other, is genuinely mm-hmm. my father and loves me like mm, that. Mm. I never take that for granted, or I try never to take that for granted. Yeah. And and so, uh, number one, the thing that I learned was that he, God is not an abandoner. He says in the Bible, in Isaiah, he says, he says, um, you shall be called sought out a city not forsaken. And those are all capitals because they're names. He says to his people who are in captivity, he says, I'm changing your name. And I learned mm. that I was not the abandoned. I was the opposite. I was not forsaken. Mm. And I was sought out. So I, mm-hmm. I learned I was fathered in a very core place. And I, I understood as an adult that my father did the best he could. He was actually a very kind man and um, just really a profoundly dear person. And he came to live with us. He did give up everything to come and live with us um, in the end. And we had uh, 20 years with him or so after that. But, you know, I was an adult by then. Mm-hmm. And the second thing was the the rejection from my husband. That wound took longer. And I remember, you know, one day I was saying, Lord, you've got to take this wound away from me because it keeps showing up in all sorts of places. And I had this picture. Sometimes I get pictures when I pray. And I had this picture. And there was a, a, a road that was just not paved. It was all made of dirt. And there was a ring that had fallen into the dirt. It was a diamond ring. And Jesus said, what do you see? And I said, it's a diamond ring. And it was like a nice big diamond. And he said, yeah, but people have stepped on it. I said, that's okay. He said, it's dirty. I said, I'll wash it. He said, it's dented. I said, I'll straighten it. It's gold. It's a diamond. It's still worth something. And there was this quiet moment. And then Jesus said, don't you see? You're my diamond. Mm. You're my jewel. If someone has thrown you not knowing your value, that was their loss. You never changed for me. You Mm. always remained my precious jewel. And Mm. where you are dirty, I'll wash you. Where you are dented, I'll fix you. I'll heal you. I'll restore you. Mm. And finally, it dawned on me, my value, my worth, 
had never been taken. I had always been his jewel. And, you know, I wrote that scene with a pearl in my first novel. And to this day, I still get letters uh, from people around the world because it's been translated into, I I don't know, a a bunch of languages. So it doesn't matter where people live. It doesn't matter how different their culture. It doesn't matter their background. They get this Mm. because we all know what it's like to be rejected, some Mm -hmm. of us more deeply than others. And to enter into that moment when God looks at you and says, you have never lost your worth. You've always been my jewel. Um, it's just a, a profound healing moment. Well, Tessa, I can tell how healing God has been in your life. And, you know, I, I do think it's extraordinary the way that you can see Jesus as a father. And I know a lot of people who experience wounds from their dad have a really hard time with loving the father, God. Um I had a friend tell me recently, she's like, I'm cool with Jesus, the son. I'm cool with the spirit, but it's really hard with God, the father, because she had some father wounds. And so it really is extraordinary how God has healed your heart so well in that. And so I just want to acknowledge that. Um, I also am so grateful for the way that you get to put these stories in your fiction books. I mean, that is just like crazy itself. And that you hear people coming back and telling you things like that. Really great. I would like to ask you this, and I don't know if this is something that you would want to share, but um, is anyone else in your family a follower of Jesus now? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's uh, one of the works of redemption in our lives was um, my dad became a Christian. My dad started because he could see there was a difference in my life. So he came to my baptism because he just wanted to know what happened to my daughter. Like, you know, where did where does this peace come from? And he started going to Bible study, but he started reading the Bible and, he, you know, how do you read a book from the first page? So he started reading in the Old Testament. He was like, are you serious? Do you really believe in this stuff? And I remember like a couple of times he just threw the Bible across the room and he started laughing hilariously. He said, you cannot believe this. The thing is, you know, I knew what he felt like. I, I'd been mm-hmm. there. I, I understood that that sense of like, this is not believable. And so I was patient most of the time. I knew that the way to Jesus wasn't with argument. It was just with love mm-hmm. and patience. And I, I did my best to give him that. I wasn't offended. I figured Jesus could, you know, protect his own reputation. And eventually my, my father was baptized on his knees in my church. A few years wow. later, my mother, who when I had become baptized, had written me like a six-page letter, like all tear-stained, why do you need a religion? Why do you need Jesus? Um, she knelt in that, in, in that same space and wept as she was baptized. And my sister is a Christian. Like her, her children now are Christian. In fact, my niece um, at 22 just gave her, like was, was baptized because she had... Uh, chosen to give her life to Jesus. And so we have the second generation in our family now following the Lord, giving their all to God. And, uh, and you know, that's extraordinary. So it, it's been a road of redemption. And because I had that healing myself from that abandonment, from that rejection, I was able to, you know, the Lord eventually brought the most amazing guy into my life. And uh, so now I'm married which, it, you know, these are unbelievable graces. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. how could you do that for me, Jesus? Like, where did you find this good guy? And yeah, so, um, and that doesn't mean life is perfect. Life is hard. Mm-hmm. Life is super hard. But I also hold on to these moments of exceptional grace and mercy. 
mm-hmm. as I walk through the hard. Well, your story is, it's unbelievable uh, because it is the gift of God. I mean, I think that's what I always think, even when I hear stories of yours, of people who see Jesus in dreams or having people invite them into their home. I just, it's always a constant reminder that Jesus is coming for his people. And as everyone's listening or watching us on YouTube, I just want you to remember that like God is faithful and he is coming for his people. And also I, I know people are going to be encouraged by your your family coming to know the Lord. I know that's not everyone's story, especially coming from a predominantly Muslim background, but there is hope for that for people who are praying for their loved ones. Like don't lose hope for that. You guys, you can still, um, God is still on the move with that. Tessa, so, so grateful. I would love to hear you. I know you're a writer and you're writing, like you're releasing books like every year. You're just putting out all this amazing stuff. But what are you reading these days? What do you like to read? Well, I mean, I'm going to be reading um, Women Who Risk for sure, because that's that's next yes. on my on my uh, table. But I just finished a book by Julie Clausen, uh, Historical Fiction. So I, because I write historical fiction, I also love reading historical fiction. Yeah, I love it so much. Well, everyone, uh, I'll put all the links, and especially for your new book coming out in November, I'll put all the links up for all of that. Tessa, Thank you, thank you, thank you for coming on to share your story. Thank you. It's been a joy and a pleasure. The Happy Hour is produced and hosted by myself, Jamie Ivey, with assistance from Nikki Ogden and Ashley Caldwell. And the show is edited by Jason Talley. 